Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the forum on the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And uh, Merry Christmas as well. This is our Christmas show for 2018. And I'd like to welcome two guests today. And our first guest is uh, from Masterton, Bevan Dews. Hi, Bevan. Hi, Dave. Merry Christmas. Good to be here. Yeah, cheers, man. Uh, Bevan's a beekeeper by profession, but he's uh, also a commercial pilot, a recreational pilot, an airshow pilot, um, the world's youngest World War One pilot, and the world's youngest P-40 pilot. So he's got it quite a bit under his belt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. <laughs> it's quite an introduction, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you kind of have to stop and pinch yourself for a sec. Yeah, you do. <laughs> And uh, and uh, my other guest I'd like to introduce is Matt Austin from Australia, from uh, over in Juni. Hi, Matt. G'day there, fellas. I thought I'd drop in a g'day for the Australian touch. Evening there, chaps. Good to be here. Yeah, good to have you on. Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas to you all. Of course, I have a far shorter um, list of, of things under my belt. But um... Well, I've got a few here. There's you, the uh, treasurer of the Australian National Aviation Museum at Moorabbin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're a historian of Australian national airways history, and uh, you're also the deputy mayor of Juni, which is pretty neat. This is a New South Wales town, so it's not aviation related, but I'm sure that you can work a bit of aviation into it every now and then. <laughs> yeah, and a lot more important than my accolades. <laughs> <laughs> international airport established, I'll be doing well. Oh, Juni International. That's, that'd be actually quite handy because you're only just down the road from tomorrow. So, yeah, airspace, and that'd be a pain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll start off uh, with the show. This is a, a one of the forum shows. So this is the number four. Um, we should have had a lot more by now, but unfortunately, uh, over a year ago, Skype stopped uh, allowing recording with the recording devices for a lot of the devices. I don't know why they did it. And we couldn't actually record Skype. Um, this has affected m- masses of podcasters, not just myself. And um, I've, uh, only within the last month or two, um, Skype has actually integrated a recorder into their own uh, system. So we can now, yahoo, we can now actually use Skype and record it and do these sort of interviews again. Um, so the forum is the the show that um, we normally have three three uh, interesting people from aviation on. I, I chose to just uh, pick two this time because we've probably got quite a bit to to get through and cover from 2018 because it's all been uh, missing uh, over 2018 without doing these shows. So um, I thought I'd pick two of my best friends in aviation, and that's uh, Bevan and Matt. Oh, lovely. And um, so um, what we normally do is we'll have a, a, a news roundup. So we'll just go through the sort of latest and um, interesting current affairs uh, in news. And um, I've got a little bit of a list here. Um, I think probably for me the biggest uh, things that's happening at the moment is the two warbird restorations that are um, neck and neck, almost ready to fly up at Ardmore, and that's the P-39 Aerocobra that... Uh, Pioneer Aviation are restoring, and Mosquito PZ-474, which uh, Avspecs are restoring. And uh, both of them are very, very close to flying, and uh, it's quite exciting, isn't it? Oh, it's fabulous. Uh, 
That's going to be absolutely spectacular to see those two in the air. Just hope we get to actually see them fly before they disappear. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Now, the P-39 and the Mosquito both appeared recently at the um, Ardmore Warbirds Open Day, uh, both static. The Mosquito ran both its engines. Uh, That was really, really thrilling because... um, most of us, including myself, uh, didn't get to see the the second mosquito that they restored uh, running or flying. It just sort of did two test flights and then went straight in a box overseas. Uh, so it was good to see one running again because I hadn't seen one since 2013, um, KA114. Yeah, like um, you, I missed that, um, but saw it in um, Seattle. Yeah, of course. Last year. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Um, so you've seen it fly. I haven't. i followed it all the way through its restoration but i missed the missed the crucial bit at the end um and the p39 also um was you know was at that air show uh last month and uh at that stage it was only missing its propeller and i know the propeller is now on it uh it arrived and they've put it on and i did hear that this week it's actually had an engine run um, I know the Mosquito had a, a double engine run today as well. I saw a live video on Facebook of it running its engines. So both of them are getting really damn close. Um, the Mosquito will fly next month. Um, it won't won't fly before the end of the year, I'm told. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know what the plans are yet for the P-39, whether it's going to fly before the end of the year or whether they'll wait till January as well. But that's pretty cool. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So um, another piece of news this week. Uh, I don't know if you guys might have seen the um, rocket launch by Rocket Lab. They put up another rocket from Mahia Peninsula. That was pretty spectacular to watch again. Those guys are going great guns. Yeah, they've launched a fair few rockets this year. be um, interesting to see what they've got planned coming up for next year. Yeah. I mean... Um, I've heard uh, Peter Beck, the the boss, say that they reckon that they will get it into a routine where they're launching them every couple of weeks. So, oh, and, and this one um, seriously was only oh, it was probably less than two months since the last one. So, uh, it's they're, they're certainly heading that way, and it's it's quite amazing for you know little old New Zealand to have its own space program going on. <laughs> exactly right. I'm a little concerned that you fellas are looking at putting warheads on them so you can rule the entire Pacific. <laughs> Shit. Don't give away the secrets. <laughs> it's those and the mosquito that's got the rockets. So. <laughs> More firepower than our Air Force. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So um, another interesting piece of news this week is the Omaka Aviation Heritage Centre um, has got funding this week to um, put towards their next expansion. So they're starting the the third phase of the museum. So that's going to be good. Um, congratulations to them for um, you know the next next phase. They they started off with the World War One uh, museum, basically World War One aircraft, and then it was about two years ago. Um, the, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the the World War Two part was put on it, um, so they kind of doubled the size of it, and that's really cool too. The um, the World War Two section. I mean, it's a really amazing museum anyway. But um, this is going to um, make it bigger again. So 
something to look forward to there. I think it's going to be pretty cool. And of course, you, you're getting a um, an aviation museum down your way at Masterton as well, aren't you, Bevan? Yeah, that's um, the uh, the current plan. Um, I think there's still a lot more work, groundwork to do, um, but it has been publicly announced that um, the green light has been given. But um, so there's no dates or anything set yet. But um, it's supposed to be a rather large facility, so it should be quite exciting for us here with all of our the World War One aircraft we've got and the ever expanding collection. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting to see what develops there and and at Amaka as well. There's there's two two um, interesting museum developments really. Um, something else that's happened this week that uh, I noticed. Uh, I think it was yesterday. I saw um, Bring Our Birds Home have done a deal to purchase the DC-10 that they've been trying to get out of uh, South America. So they've now actually struck deals to get the the 737, the DC-8, and the DC-10, they've got three deals. Oh, wow. so that's quite amazing. Um, that's of course, it is, eh? It's, the, the hard bit now is to, they've got to, you know... They've got to get them back. <laughs> yeah, and I guess probably get the money together to, to bring them back and all that sort of thing, but... Um, How no, would one doing... go about doing that? That's amazing. Mm. It's remarkable, really, when you think about it, because I remember when it was announced, and I remember thinking, reading about it, and hearing about it, and having a good chuckle to myself, and then listening to the the um, the, the fella speaking about it, and I thought, oh well, he's actually thought this out, unlike so many other um, schemes. And then plodding along and going here and there, and actually seems to be getting somewhere. And I think, good on him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I was the same as you. I was quite sceptical until I did that interview with him for the Wings of New Zealand show, and uh, I came away just with a whole different view of it. I thought, hey, yeah, this is going to probably work if he keeps up, keeps this up, and it looks like it is working, so that's really good. Well done. More strength to his arm, as they say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the only other news item that I've got is... Um, uh, you know, quite a few people know this now, but, but some don't. But I've taken over the editing of Sport Fly magazine, so uh, I'm working on that right now. Um, it's very close to being finished for my first edition, and um, I'm nervous as hell, but it's quite exciting at the same time. So it's going to be interesting to to see how this goes. <laughs> I, I'll take I've taken over from the legendary John King, who um, you know is one of New Zealand aviation media's uh, best known personalities and, and, and very, very experienced. So it's been good to have him mentoring me along the way and all that. So. I'm sure you'll do absolutely fantastically. Yeah. Well, thank you for your confidence. <laughs> I, I wish I shared it, but uh, I'll see how it goes anyway. I think it'll be quite good. Um, have you guys got any news items from New Zealand or Australia that, that you've picked up on? Or around the world? Well, as I'm outnumbered, I'll um, um, step back and I'll, I'll go after you, Bevan, if you like. Okay. <laughs> um, I think you've covered our local news with the, um, the, the new potential museum down here. Um, for us down here with the shake up with the vintage aviator over the last year or so it's great to have um a little bit more direction now with um, wings over wire being our major display coming up for the season 
So yep. it'll be the one chance to see the collection in action, um, which we've been practicing um, for the display um, over the last couple of months. So hopefully that should be um, yeah, just enjoy and see the history flying again. I think you just dropped you dropped out there a bit, Bevan. But uh, what was the last thing you said? Oh, sorry. Um, I think it should be a great opportunity for everyone to see the history flying again, since it's been dormant in the in the hangar for the last year or so. Um, yeah, great to have a little bit more um, public engagement again. Absolutely. No, that's that's brilliant. Uh, I'm really looking forward to wings over wire wrapper and seeing all the the World War One aircraft as well. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but other than that, I think it's all pretty quiet on the home front. Yeah. So, Matt, what have you got? Yeah, not a huge amount um, of super current news. Um, things are plotting along with various restorations around the place that, that I'm aware of. Um, of course, being a bit of a Beaufort tragic, they, um, the Beaufort up in Queensland, the only one which is being restored to airworthy status at the moment, uh, just had um, one of its main planes fitted. So yep. that's uh, another step along the way. And um, it's it's a, it, it's a, an ongoing process and they're plodding along and doing pretty well. So um, that's certainly one that I would be very excited about seeing. So, so that, that's plodding along. Um, down at Moorabbin, we're still plodding along on a few projects of ours. We um, have been working fairly closely with um, RAAF Heritage over the last several years and uh, they decided that they've had a bit of a rationalisation over the last few years of um, gate guards, uh, especially ones that were becoming fizzier by the day. So um, they entrusted to us the Canberra bomber um, a couple of years ago, which we disassembled in Northern truck down to Melbourne and put that together and that's now uh, outside at the moment, but it's in fairly um, good solid weather weatherproof paint in its uh, late, it's sort of um, early 70s colours. Uh, we've also, they also entrusted to us one of our, one of the Avon Sabres, which was also in Wagga. And um, down at Moorabbin, we already have an Avon Sabre, but that was one that came from a fire dump in the early 70s. And that was fairly, fairly agricultural. So um, this this one is a lot better. And we uh, put it together and have it, have it now on display with a, a stand up. And you can, we've, um, uh, made the cockpit fairly fairly kid-proof, and on certain times it's it's one of the airframes that we we we've set up to let people sit in the cockpit and make jet noises and and shoot down MIGs and have a great time. So that that's coming along. Um, cool. Uh, the the my favourite, of course, the Australian National Airways DC3 that we have at Moorabbin. That that's uh, now entirely paint stripped, and there's a lot of a lot of metal work's been going on that over the last couple of years, and we're fairly quickly getting to the stage where we're looking at um, putting things back together because it's easy to pull things apart, and then it takes a while to fix things, but then the putting back together that's the fun bit because you you know as we all know. Um, the, the first, the, you know, the 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 first ninety percent of work gets done, and then the second ninety percent of it gets done. So it seems right. to take about the same amount of time. So we're plodding along with Moorabbin, and um, yeah, so things that things are going well, and various other little things going on at other museums around around Australia. Um, a Canberra cockpit was uh, just recently, not long been finished at the South Australian Museum, and various static warbirds are being worked on, as well as 
things being done uh, also to fly. So, so business as usual, plodding along, and um, hopefully we'll see a few interesting new exhibits in the next year or so. Excellent. Uh, one question: um, the the aircraft that were that have come down from Wagga, now they were all sitting outside there, weren't they? That's correct. Well, the, the Canberra was. The, so at the um, RWF, uh, just outside of Wagga, they had the. They've got about five or six airframes on the front gate, um, but they also had a, one of which was a Canberra, and they also had a second Canberra just outside the um, one of the mess. Balls. And that was the one that was inside away from everyone. And the second, um, the Avon Sabre was in a hangar at Wagga that was, had been transferred there for some reason. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And it had never been, nothing had ever been done with it. Okay. But, but had spent a lot of time outside. So, but was pretty good for the, for the experience. So um, not nearly as fizzy as our other one. Right, right. Gotcha. So the, the atmosphere at Moorabbin would be a bit more moist than Wagga, though, wouldn't it? Wagga's quite a dry area, isn't it? Well, the atmosphere yeah. of the Melbourne air, because we're sit we sit on Port Phillip Bay, is fairly muggy, um, gets quite muggy. And, of course, Melbourne is... We have the four seasons in one day, as, as um, some of your countrymen might talk about. And, yep. um, yeah, so that's why um, a hangar big enough to hold all of our exhibits all of our airframes is, is something that we've been looking at for a very long time. And to that end, we're looking at a new site um, in conjunction with the airport. And um, part of the plan will be a hangar that's big enough to keep everything inside. So rather than the usual museum situation of restoring something and then trying to slow down the deterioration, we'll hopefully be in a position in you know some years' time where the deterioration will be a lot slower because everything will be inside. So, yeah, okay. that, is, that certainly is an issue. And um, everything that's outside is painted in fairly agricultural, heavy-duty. Don't stand any closer than 20 feet. Um, otherwise, you'll you'll see just how thick the paint is, but it, right. but it helps. Okay. Oh, cool. Uh, right, so is there any other news, guys? Mm, uh, I don't think so. Yeah, not, not a lot from where I'm looking. Okay. Um well, I'm just going to run through uh, the next section, which is uh, events that are coming up, aviation events. And we've got quite a few coming up in the next couple of months here uh, in New Zealand. So the first one, I'm just wondering if you're going to go to this one, Bevan, is our first in the world fly-in at Waipukarau Aerodrome on the 1st of January. I'm not too sure yet. I was actually just thinking about that one today because it used to be on a um, farmer's airstrip okay. um, just uh, just out of Woodville, um, but he's stopped running it there, so it's good to hear that it'll be at Park this year, so I'll try and get to that. Okay, cool. Uh, and then on the uh, 11th to the 25th of January, there's the, uh, I think it's the 53rd Walsh Memorial Scout Flying School at Matamata, or Wakaroa Aerodrome at Matamata. Um, and uh, so that's where they get together a whole lot of uh, teenagers and teach them how to fly and it's a fantastic um, flying school that's been going for over 50 years um, two week camp sort of thing and um, always lots and lots of aeroplanes in the air there if uh, spotters want to go and have a look um, and did you ever consider doing the Walsh, Bevan? Um, I was in the air training course so at that same time as the 
air training corps camp down at Woodburn. So I did oh, yes. that when I was 16, did my first solo down there. Right, gotcha. Uh, I believe on the 26th of January at um, Thames Aerodrome is their Wings and Wheels. So um, I didn't make make it to long last year. I haven't been to it, but apparently last year it was very good. So I'm going to see if I can get across to that um, this year. Um, and then 2nd of February uh, at Omaka is the Healthy Bastards Bush Pilot Champs. Um, that's another one I'd love to get to, but I probably won't make it uh, make it to this one. Have you ever been down to that one? No, no, I've never managed to make it there either. Yeah, it always looks really good, eh? They have a lot of uh, uh, sh- short field competitions and was it um, short landings or whatever. Um, interesting stuff going on there with interesting aeroplanes. Yeah, it's always a great group of people, so I would definitely like to try and get there at some point. Yeah, me too. Uh, now, oh, I haven't put the date down for this one. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> but the, it, it is on the forum. If you want to look it up, is Rocket Day for um, the, the annual high-power rocket launch at the New Zealand Rocket Association's Taupere launch site, which is at Orini near Huntley. Um, that's something that sounds quite interesting. Um, it's not not as big a rockets as the uh, rocket lab are sending up, but uh, it, I think it's still from the photos I've seen in the past years I've done it, it still looks pretty impressive. Um, it's sort of an open day to get people interested in rockets. Yeah, good stuff. Mm. Uh, and now that sounds uh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, down at uh, Ashburton Airfield uh, in the South Island. On the 8th, 9th and 10th is the Great Plains Fly-In 2019 and that's um, run by the Ashburton Aviation Museum in conjunction with the Sport Aircraft Association in New Zealand and that's um, Sport Aircraft Association's biggest fly-in of the year uh, um, in the in the South Island. So um, sort of a, a camp and fly-in and all sorts of things there. Um, that sounds like it would be really good. I'd love to get down to that as well, but I don't think I will this time. And that same weekend uh, up here in the Waikato um, at uh, Tikowai or Tikofai Airfield, depending where you're brought up, um, the, they have the um, Tikowai Country Market and Family Day uh, on the 9th of February. Uh, I've been to two of those. They've run two of them so far, and the first one was absolutely brilliant. The second one, unfortunately, it just hosed down with rain, but it was still brilliant. So um, it doesn't matter whether it was raining or not. It was a good good day out, so definitely worth going along to that one. Um, and then 22nd, 23rd, and 24th of February is the big one um, for me this coming um, summer, and that's, uh, and for you, Bevan, Wings Over Wire Wrapper. Uh, down at Masterton, uh, so I'm very looking forward, very much looking forward to that. Um, and uh, I think it's the 9th and 10th of March is the uh, Tiger Moth Rally at Harbour. So if you're down at Harbour, you see a lot of Tiger Moths come in there. It's the AGM. I just had a quick look and at the date for that. It's the 1st to the 3rd. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, oh, I was right. just looking at I... that as you were talking about it. Well, because I looked that up too, and uh, and what I found was the ninth and tenth. So that's all um, oh, right. I just had a look on the tiger rag thing that they they sent okay, out well to that, members. So. They're going to know, yeah. so that that's good yeah. to know. But thank you. And the other bit of interest, uh, the weekend or two weekends before, well, the weekend before Wings of Wire, sorry, Art Deco, is another. Oh good yes, 
flying display yes. in Napier. That's 15th to 17th of February. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, you'd love that, Matt. It's um, you know, Napier just turns it on for the for the whole week, and then they have um, within that week they call it Aero Deco and have um, yeah, a bit of aviation down there with a lot of warbirds and classics and stuff will turn up there. It's very good. You'd need a beach dagger wing and a Lockheed Twelve for something like that, I reckon. Yeah, yep. <laughs> sure and, would. And a lot of de Havilands. Ah, very good. Of course. Okay. Um. The last one on my list uh, is the other big one for 2019, and that's Classic Fighters Easter Air Show um, at Omaka. Um, and yeah, that's always my favourite air show. It comes around every two years, and, and Wings Over Wire Rapper is another great air show. So I hope I can get to both of them, but I'm definitely going to Wings Over Wire Rapper. Um, so that, that's be good. So uh, what, any events over your way, Matt? Yeah, there's a there's a few. Um, of course, living 55 kilometres from Tamora, I'm you know I tend to go to the little uh, aircraft showcases. They have generally have those once or twice a month. Might have five or six aeroplanes flying, and um, it can be especially in the winter months. It can be quite a personal little event. You know, I've been there sometimes, and there might only be a hundred or you know a couple of hundred people there, and you get the lounge chair out and make yourself nice and comfy with a blanket and watch the aeroplanes. It's like one's own private air show, really. It's terrific. But um, they've got uh, – they've cancelled the March and the um, April, uh, the Anjac Day showcases, but they've got one in April and then they've got, you know, further, further throughout the year they rotate their aircraft and it's terrific to see. Yep. Um, of course, in more national news, the um, the Avalon International Air Show 2019 is on at the start of March. That's mm-hmm. the big trade one. So that's our, our, our um, you know, equivalent of the massive big kind of ones where you have the the, the defence and the, the general aviation, sport and recreational and, and air, air, air safety and all of those other thingy-me-bobs, and yep. they usually have a, a number of old aeroplanes there as well. Um, something to see. Mm. I, to my great character, never... Take that one. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly one to see if you're bang for your buck and, you know, whizzy noises and all that sort of thing, which is great. I, to my great and eternal shame, have never been to an Avalon, only because it's just the, you know, what do they say, the, the, the holes in the thing haven't lined up to, to make it possible, but this yep. might be my first. Okay. See how I Smaller, more regional um, shows are on. There's there's one at Evans Head in New South Wales, uh, the sort of in the middle of January, the Great Eastern Fly-In, and that's always pretty good. There's a museum there at Evans Head, and they're, they're um, making great strides. That was um, Evans Head. They had the bombing and gunnery school during the war, and the battles flew out of there. Right. Um, then, of course, yeah, you've got Avalon at the start of March. Um, in April, there's one over over in Western Australia at the at Valley View, um, over in Geraldton, which is about as far from here as you can get and still be on this bit of dirt. Um, start of May is one of the big ones, the Wings over Illawarra, which is um, the Haas, basically Haas plus others. So that's that's a um, pretty popular show. Uh, middle of May, um, I've got here the 19th is the Rathmines Catalina Festival, which is which is always good. They're um, the old Catalina base there, and they um, uh, it's that's a terrific little show. Uh, same day, they've got a, a show up at Toowoomba up in Queensland. So um, various general and historic um, events going on around the shop. So um, 
I'll get to a couple of those, of course, but I try to t tend to sit under a tree or sort of sit where no one can see me and just watch the world go past, which is, a, for me, a good way to do it. Yeah, definitely. Now, I remember, um, well, it was probably about a year or so ago, at one of the Tamora uh, weekends, one of the, the casual low-key weekends, you were broadcasting live using your phone uh, through Facebook with your um, gramophone there and you were playing 1930s music as the as the old aeroplanes were flying around. It was really cool. It was a lot of fun that day. I had some raised eyebrows from the, the ladies behind the counter when I turned up there with the, the black leatherette box and yes. explained what I was doing and they had a little chuckle and I sort of placed myself out on the grass and the um, there's that uh, a, a certain... Um, dual two-seat P40 that Bevan, you might, may know a little bit about, um, <laughs> tootling around the sky along with, with a, um, I think it was at that stage, might have been the Mark 16 speed. And, um, yeah, just the sound of the big V12s with the the, um, the 30 swing music playing. It was very, it was, as you said before, atmospheric, but in a different way. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, um I think we'll move on to the next section now, and and basically because uh, the forum hasn't really been on for over a year, I thought we'd look back at all of our highlights from the year. So um, we'll we'll go through aviation highlights. That is, um, we'll go through what we've experienced and just um, and just talk about it. So I'll, I'll start off so you guys get a, an idea of what I'm talking about. But um, uh, for me, it's actually been quite a big year of aviation. I've had all sorts of things going on, and um, the first one was back in. February, I think it was, uh, when um, Bevan, you and I went up to uh, Wadianga to the uh, Tiger Moth flying, and that was my first ever Tiger Moth flying, and that was really fantastic. It was quite a it quite a, a windy weekend. Yeah, it was. It was a wind, windy weekend, so it was, you know, quite um, yeah, it was quite rough to be just standing there watching planes, but it didn't really matter because uh, they they still flew, and and there was a lot of really nice aircraft there and great people. So that was bloody good. I think that's the thing about the Tiger Club is it's such a fantastic group of people that even if the stuff doesn't fly or people like you know, us, we turned up by road. It doesn't matter who you are, you're all welcome and everyone just enjoys a good yarn. So yeah. it just makes it fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'd love to go to another one. I, I missed the – there was another one this year at Tamaranui, but uh, I, th I actually thought it was going to be washed out. The rest of the country, was it was raining, and Tamaranui seemed to have nice weather. So – yeah, um, just pity no one could get there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of people drove. Yeah, I can imagine. Oh dear. Um, and of course, uh, that same weekend, Bevan, we then drove down to Tauranga and uh, had the first uh, Wings Over New Zealand Forum meet of the year at Classic Flyers Museum in Tauranga. Um, and that was brilliant. We had a packed room, a um, lot of enthusiastic people there, and a group of really great speakers, and, and a really excellent venue. So, uh, we hadn't done one there before, but um, I thought it was a really, really good event, and I'm pleased to say that we've been invited back to do it again. So we may do that round about March next year, I think. I'm not nothing's set in concrete yet, but we'll, we will be going back. Yeah, that was um, spectacular. That's the first one that I've actually managed to get to, and really, really enjoyed it. Very interesting and some fantastic people again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we just we've definitely got to get you along to more of the forum meets. I know that you've wanted to come to lots of them, but it was good that you got to got to that one. Uh, and then, of course, the next big thing for me, um, again with you, Bevan, was uh, 
Warbirds over Wanaka, and it was brilliant to get down there because I hadn't been since 2006. So, um, you know, there's a 12-year gap in between going to Wanaka Air Show, and uh, uh, it was, yeah, really good to get back down there. Fantastic air show, and I think, for me, a much better time because instead of staying in accommodation and that, it it was much more relaxed and, and family atmosphere because I was, um, I was very privileged to be staying with the Brody family at their place there and along with you Bevan and your family and uh, John Saunders and a few others there and I got to meet some other real characters as well like Taylor Moore and Pete, Pete McComb and people like that so it was, it was great fun. Kieran. And Kieran, Kieran Leo from, who was out from England and um and also uh, Michaela, uh, who was out from, um, where's she from? Uh, Sweden. Sweden, yeah. I was, was going to say Norway, and I knew that wasn't right. <laughs> but no, that was a really, really fun weekend and uh, and a great air show. And it was also brilliant to actually see you displaying, um, opening the show with uh, you and uh, Dave Phillips with your aerobatic routine. And uh, so, uh, you know, that was, that was really good. And um, highlights too was um in fact just after i got out of the car when we arrived i was offered a a ride in a dh89 with uh, adam butcher was the pilot and it was thanks to brian greenwood that um they had a spare seat and he he said oh dave come and have a fly and i was like okay <laughs> it was really good <laughs> and uh so yeah i'd only been there for less than half an hour and um didn't even get to look around and i was on an airplane and flying over the lake and we had the uh Staggerwing and uh, Foxmoth uh, flying in close formation with us, and that was fantastic. And then, of course, that same evening, I got to have a fly with you too, Bevan, and your chipmunk, and that was really good as well. And the yeah. beautiful evening over the lake, just fantastic. We did strike it well with the weather. We certainly did. Um, so, I mean, that, those are those are my highlights of Wanaka, um, and uh, and then, of course, from Wanaka. <clears throat> something interesting came out of that because um, chatting with Russell Brody, he asked me then about um, if I could look in to see if anybody had flown his Tiger Moth, which is um, an XRNZ F1 and had fl- flown for, I think, most of its wartime career at uh, uh, three elementary flying training school at Herewood, and its number was NZ1443. And so... When I got home, I started looking through some of the logbooks that I've um, collected copies of. I, I like to photograph logbooks, and um, I started going back through. And the only person I found was Brian Cox, who not a, not only do I know really well, but he, and not only is he still alive, but um, he still flies. He, he got his license back earlier in the year. So w- we thought that was pretty cool. And then uh, oh, maybe a month and a half or so went by, and kind of thinking how we're going to get the tiger moth up to Brian because he lives in, in Tauranga and it's never going to happen sort of thing. And then I suddenly thought, well, hang on, wouldn't it be easy to get Brian down to the tiger moth? And uh, so that's that's what happened. And I asked Brian, would you be willing to fly down to the South Island to go flying in this tiger moth? And he said, only if I can do aerobatics. <laughs> 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 Not bad for a 93-year-old. And, uh, and I said, well, I'll just check with, Russell on that, and of course Russell's like, yeah, of course he can. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and and so then we went to the forum and said, how are we going to get Brian down there? And within, well, I I I put up a a a, 
give a little and by that evening we'd raised more money than what we needed and um and then i think almost twice as much of what we needed and uh, so that that's the enthusiasm of the the forum members to make that happen it was fantastic and then um russell said to me well you've got to come to to dave and so um yeah we both went down and uh that because i was going down to the south island again and um because brian was coming down i thought well hey we might as well have another forum meet and so we set one up at uh wiggerham and that was the second one for the year and again at wiggerham we had a packed room um really enthusiastic people um fantastic speakers and brian got to uh talk again he actually spoke at the at the Tauranga one and so this was his second one for the year and i think it's the third or fourth one he's actually spoken at <clears throat> um so yeah, he's quite a regular at our forum meets, which is pretty cool. Um, and and we also had um, Philip Stewart, who was a uh, hundred years old and, um, and and a wartime Spitfire pilot, and he was brilliant. Um, and yeah, quite a few other really good speakers, and and, a, and another fantastic forum meet. And then the next day, uh, we went down to uh, Rangitata Island uh, to the Brodie's place and um, had the Tiger Moth flight. So. Brian went up and he did his uh, did his aerobatics with Andy Love as his safety pilot and uh, yeah really really amazing weekend that was outstanding yeah it was pretty cool actually I mean looking back at it it's pretty cool in fact Brian sends out every year um, to all his friends and family he sends out a a Christmas newsletter where he goes back over all the highlights of his year and he's just sent one out today and and he put at the top was his Tiger Moth flight. He said that was this is the biggest thing of the year, so I thought that was pretty cool. That's uh, fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, another highlight for me this year has been um, once again being able to watch Graham Frew in full noise at the Reno Air Races. That was pretty neat, um, watching it live. And uh, those guys have been fantastic. Second year in a row representing New Zealand and mixing it with the big boys there. And, um, not quite the same results as last year because last year they were blowing away the lower fields, but they went straight in and, and into the uh, the gold. Uh, I think it's called the gold field or whatever. Um, and uh, still brilliant to watch that. So that was another highlight for this year. Um, and it was also pretty cool to see that the government actually finally made a uh, decision to um, purchase some. Boeing P-8 Poseidon patrol bombers to replace the Orion, so I'm looking forward to seeing those come into service. Um, mm. Let's hope they do something about the Herx. Yes, well, I suppose I've probably spent it <laughs> now, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll have to see. Um, another um, pretty cool thing this year is I've actually been along to three events at uh, New Zealand Warbirds at Ardmore, and... Um, the first one was the screening of uh, the Spitfire feature movie, and that was that was pretty cool to see it on the big screen in the hangar with the Spitfire there and with uh, an actual Spitfire pilot from the war and several Warbird Spitfire pilots there and all that sort of thing. Uh, and I actually had the pleasure of travelling up with John Wall and his daughter and uh, uh, our, our friend uh, Ian Um up from Hamilton uh, to that. So, you know, we, we had John 
in the car talking about it and all that sort of thing as well, which is pretty neat. And he was the special guest for the evening. Uh, it being the only actual wartime Spitfire pilot that we were actually able to get along there because they're quite thin on the ground now. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so that was pretty neat. And then uh, I think the month after that, September, um, I got invited along to the Warbirds cocktail party, which was really quite cool. Um, it was just actually a special event to open their new hangar that's uh, got the World War One aircraft in it and sort of um, formalised that, and that was that was pretty neat. And then I did mention earlier that uh, last month I got along to the Warbirds Open Day as well, um, which was the only one they've had this year because the one in June got rained off and they had to cancel it. Uh, and that was probably the best one I've been to for probably several years, I think since the mosquito flew at the one in 2012. Um, it was a really excellent day and, and fun day out. Um, and then uh, just, uh, what was it, two weekends ago, um, we had our third forum meet of the year, and I've never done three in the same year before. Not sure if I'll do it again either, but <laughs> uh, and that was the Wings Over New Zealand Christmas party at Ardmore um, in the Fly DC3 hangar, and um, another excellent event. Um, very, very well supported by Jessica and Jeff Cooper and all the Fly DC3 crew, uh, who have always been fantastic um, to Wings Over New Zealand. And also um, very, um, very good to have the support of Pioneer, Aero and Aspects too, allowing us to actually go in and have a look at their restoration uh, projects that are happening at the moment. So that was pretty neat. Um, another another good event and um, that's probably all of the events that I've been to but there's a couple other things that have been quite outstanding this year and one of them is well I was going to say about the Wings, o Wings Over New Zealand show mainly because of this um, lack of Skype I haven't been quite so prolific this year as I have in the past but I still have put out some you know Quite, I think some quite interesting stories, people's stories uh, through the show this year, and we're just approaching the 200th episode, and uh, I still can't believe that I'm up to you know nearly 200. It just when I started this, I didn't think I'd even get to 20. So it's um, a pretty amazing feat. It's, yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. Um, I I did sort of uh, I, I sort of was toying with ideas what should i do for the 200th episode and then i came up with a great idea which was to record um young people in aviation and uh get all sorts of different young people that are, uh, are learning to fly or in, involved in engineering and that sort of thing and, and get all their stories recorded and put it together <coughs> but even the and and it's actually been very popular with people too that the, they're coming out of the woodwork to uh to be involved, but I think it's going to take longer than what I'm hoping. So it might not be the 200th episode. It might be about the 210th, um, the way I'm going. So I just, I need, I need to get a lot more of the, because there's people all over the place that want to be in it. And, uh, I need to get, um, them recorded. And I think we're up to, this is probably episode 100, 197. So it might be getting a bit too close to make it the 200th. So I might have to come up with another idea for the 200th. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> so, 
but no, that's uh, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm waffling now. That's that's quite cool. Uh, really, just the other the other highlight for me is um, I'm always researching Air Force history, and there's been some pretty cool things that um, that I've been researching this year that I really have enjoyed and and got some great results with too. And I've been looking into the fighter squadrons a lot, um, the RNZF P40 squadrons mainly. And um, I'm just learning so much by looking into the logbooks and the operational record books, and um, it's, it's fascinating. And from that, I decided to start putting together a list of matching the codes with the serials on those P40s. And um, you can see that on the forum, it's it's actually stickied at the top of the wartime RNZF um, page, because nobody had actually sat down and done this before, and so I put up what I had, and a lot of other people offered other stuff to put in there. And we're getting quite a comprehensive list there now of the the buzz codes that the P40s wore and found that some of them that had been recorded in the past were wrong and stuff like that. So that that was quite cool. Definitely. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the things that really helps with this sort of research is the, the logbooks. And I put out a call on the forum for wartime logbooks, uh, copies of, I don't want the originals. Um, and quite a few people have come forward, they've photographed or scanned the logbooks or, um, you know, uncles and grandfathers and all that sort of thing, their logbooks, and they've sent them through. And every every one of them has a, a story in its own, and it's pretty cool. Um, so I really appreciate that. And if anyone out there has any RNZF logbooks, particularly Pacific ones, but any, any of them really, um, I'm always, you know, I'd always be very keen to, to get a copy. Thank you. Um, and just two more things before you guys go to sleep. <laughs> um, two, two things that I'm really pleased with that, uh, that I discovered was um, the first one is just by poking around in online archives uh, in America, I found two different photographs of RNZF P40s that had been in Tonga which the photographs of them are so rare. So you can see them on the forum. And um, the other one is only just recently uh, discovered that some of the P40s at Ardmore had white noses. Now, nobody's nobody's ever noticed that before, and um, everybody's going, huh? <laughs> what? So we don't know why they had white noses. Uh, well, we think it's white. They're in black and white photographs, but it definitely looks white. And there's at least four, maybe five of them have got white noses. So that's that's really interesting. We want to find out why did these particular ones. And there's probably 30 of them lined up there, but five of them have got white noses. It's quite distinctive too, the mm. ones that stand out with those white noses. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, how much of the nose is white? Pretty much the whole cow. Like, right... Uh, okay. Uh, up to about where the wing is, um, where, where the wing starts, and yeah. and one of them looks like it has a black stripe or or a dark stripe. So it seems to be white on top, and then as you, as you go down the side, there's a there's a probably one foot um, wide stripe. And I was thinking, oh, maybe that's just a panel removed. But then I looked at panels, and it's like, no, that doesn't fit where the panels go. So um, yeah, like a cow. I mean, a cow panel. Um, yeah, but they go all the way down to, to under the chin by the look of it is with this white. So, hmm, it's weird. 
very very interesting stuff and i hope we might find some more photos of of that uh in the future um and the the last thing that i've got before we go into you you guys um there's some low one well, just a low light and that is what happens every year but we've um lost some pretty uh you know, pr pretty good aviators and, and veterans and stuff this year. And it's just sad to see some of them go like uh, Alan Peart, who was a fantastic chap and he was our last fighter race. And uh, just yesterday we lost Doug Smith, DFC, who was almost 101. And um, I've actually interviewed him for the Wings of New Zealand show. He, he flew uh, Boston's and uh, uh, Lancaster's and various things in the RAF. Uh, attached to the RAF, he was a Kiwi, um, and a real character, and, um, you know, he's, he was the oldest member of the New Zealand Bomber Command Association, and um, really, really neat guy, so it's sad to see him go, and also uh, the the Wallace boys, too, this year, it's been very sad that, you know, two of the Wallace boys have, have both died in helicopter crashes. Yeah, that was quite tragic. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, um, on that sad note, we'll go into Matt's highlights. What are you? What are my highlights? Because I'm I'm stuck in a little country town halfway between Melbourne and Sydney, which just happens to be uh, 55 kilometres from Tamora. Most of my aviation highlights, as far as seeing things, have have been Tamora, and yeah. so definitely um, my personal highlight was the um, Warbirds Down Under show. Never seen a hurricane and got to see one in full noise and see one in, in great style. Um, never seen a flying Catalina before. I've seen the, the Tomorrow aircraft, well, the, the flying Tomorrow aircraft plenty of times. Yeah. But um, just leaning up against the fence, watching all the aircraft start up and sort of taxi past seemingly within arm's reach, just crackling and, and, and you know, popping as they sort of ambled past on their way out to... to take off just it always gives you goosebumps it really does and um seeing seeing the hurricane fly was was definitely a highlight but just the incredible professionalism and just the, the the work and the time and the effort that goes into putting a show on like that for the punters like myself to sort of stand there jaw, jaw agape watching the world go past that was definitely a, a highlight I'd, I'd stayed away from the Again, I'd stayed away from the Warbirds Down Under shows because I thought to myself, well, I see most of these aeroplanes in groups of five or six throughout the year, you know. But then, of course, coming along and seeing it in, in great style. And I was quite privileged, actually, to, to go there as a VIP representing Junie Shire because we're neighbouring shires. And um, I made a, a couple of little posts of, you know, watching the air show from the from the um, leather lounge in the hangar there. And that was great fun. But, um yeah, it was terrific. So that's definitely my highlight. Brilliant. Is there anything else, or did you want to move on? Yeah, that's 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 basically it as far as highlights go. Yeah. Okay, that's Other a pretty cool that. highlight. <laughs> that's very cool. So, Bevan, what are your highlights been? Um, a few highlights this year. Um, it's actually been quite a busy year for aviation for for me. Um, I've was lucky enough to get two scholarships this year. Um, one with Warbirds over Wanakin, so they run a scholarship each year. 
um, for two to try and encourage two younger pilots to get into warbird flying or help them through their initial steps to get into displaying it. Warbirds over Wanaka is their um, main target. Um, but so I ended up getting one of those scholarships this year, which was um, I was quite quite surprised to get, which I'm very happy about. Um, I'm hoping to do some formation aerobatics with the scholarship money from that. So that Fantastic. should be quite exciting and a <laughs> an eye opener for both me and the instructor. <laughs> um, and I also got a Tiger Club scholarship as well. So that's going to be used to. Um, to gain more instructional techniques and hopefully do some blow-level display aerobatics with Dave Phillips. Brilliant. So that should be rather exciting. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's the first time um, I've ever had an um, aviation scholarship before and it was just amazing to get the two in one year. I was very fortunate. Um, what else has been highlights of this year? So working through from the beginning, obviously the events that I've been to with Dave, or which you've already touched on. Yeah. Um, well, Wanaka is always a huge highlight to be able to display down there. Um, I think that was that's my third or fourth Warbirds over Wanaka now. Okay. Must be must be the third one. I did my first aerobatic display down there. I think when I was nineteen. Wow. Um, yeah. So that was that was. That was um, a wee while ago now. Um, and then moving through over winter, um, I ended up with the opportunity to go and spend time with Doug Hamilton at Wangaratta at Precision um, Air Motive there, um, staying with Doug at his, on the farm and the hangar home and converted my license. So I've got an Australian commercial license now. Um, so I did a bit of um, Harvard time over there. Well, that's what I intended to do while I was over there. Um, so I went flying with Doug and got checked out in his Harvard after an hour or two. Um, and then to my surprise that evening when we went up to the house for dinner, um, he handed me the, the P-40 flight manual and said, um, go build some time in the Harvard and when you're comfortable, we'll have a crack at this. And I couldn't really kind of believe my eyes or what he was saying. I thought, oh, well, we'll just see what happens, take it with a grain of salt and... Um, after about, what well, I was there for five, six weeks. After about four weeks of using the Harvard as a ferry from the farm into the airfield each morning to the workshop and flying it for some rides and aerobatics and stuff, um, the opportunity arose to you know, fly the P-40, which was absolutely mind-blowingly ridiculous. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I never expected that the day would actually come that I would get to fly one and to be at the end of the runway and actually, you know, be ready to go. It was, it was quite spectacular, really. I don't think you can really put into words how how kind of good, well, interesting the experience is. It's kind of um, exciting and daunting all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, once you get airborne and get the gear up, it's yeah, pretty amazing. Um, so I did a couple of flights in that. And then um, back to New Zealand, been flying a bit more of the World War One stuff back home, getting ready for wings over Warrapa. 
Um, I'll touch a little bit more on that stuff later. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely been a very busy year um, for aviation so far. Yeah, that's that is pretty awesome. Must be an incredible feeling when you you know push the throttle forward and then the you know the tail comes up and then the noise of the main gear stops and <laughs> ground recedes below you. Just what goes yeah. through your mind? Well, the whole thing is too fast. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, don't open the throttle too quick or you won't stay on the runway. Um, yeah. But yeah, so as you kind of line up, of course, you can't really see anything ahead of you. Um, open the power probably to maybe a third of takeoff power, maybe slightly more. So about 25 or 30 inches of manifold pressure. And it's kind of just enough that you're accelerating pretty quick. And when you get to about 60 miles an hour, I guess, I never never really looked, but you can kind of feel when the tail wants to come up. And as the tail comes up, it's amazing. The aeroplane kind of wants to swing to the left with the kind of big gyroscopic effect of the propeller. Um, and then once you get the tail up and you're all comfortable, go through to takeoff power which is kind of between 40 and 45 inches of manifold pressure. It's probably, and that's got a big engine in it, it's 1,400 horsepower, so it's probably 1,200, 1,250 horsepower takeoff, I guess. And once wow. you get airborne, it's kind of get airborne about 100 miles an hour, and the thing's absolutely screaming at you, and blooming air whistling through the, the um, cockpit with the canopy open, and... It kind of just takes a second to kind of get your head around what you're doing and um, get the gear up and suddenly you're at 150 miles an hour and climbing quite a few thousand feet a minute. And that's just amazing, really, every every part of it. And then you kind of think, holy shit, I had someone in the back seat with me. but And, yeah, the guys back in the day, they would have just... jumped from the Harvard straight into the P40, and I bet it was a bit of a shock to the system. You can definitely see why they lost a few of them. Yes. Yeah. Well, of course, old uh, Brian Cox talks about his first flight in one, and he, he took off and then ended up upside down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> straight after the takeoff and was heading straight at a building. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think he had, what, 126 hours or something when he flew mm. a P40 for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, and, and what, and, um, you've got you've got a few more than that, haven't you? Yeah, I had about just over fifteen hundred hours, fifteen fifty, and yeah. probably uh, fifteen fifteen hours in a Harvard, I guess, maybe slightly less. Right. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a, an amazing experience, and having done it, kind of just reinforces the dream of. You know, flying them more and getting into the air show flying in them and being able to try and continue and share the experience with others as well. Yeah, that's brilliant, yeah. man. Absolutely funny. Yeah. I remember myself, you know, when I, my first solo, you know, that that, that pinnacle of a airborne excitement, the Cessna 150 Aerobat, um, the, the first time the, the noise stopped and I was climbing out, I was thinking to myself, 
I'm here by myself. <laughs> I, I, there's no one who can actually do anything if, if things go pear-shaped. So probably better get this right. And while I sort of took along in one of the easiest aeroplanes in the world to fly and sort of did my, my first circuit and, and landed, I thought, yeah, that was a relief. But um, just that feeling of knowing that there's a whole lot of air between yourself and the ground and mm. realising you're all alone. It's like, oh, okay. Mm. Right. <laughs> It's actually, I think, it's quite a nice feeling not having the instructor next to you as well. <laughs> I did my first solo in a 152 and, um, yeah. yeah, it's just, yeah. I've and how better the of having, Yeah, yeah, it's better amazing person. how much better it goes without the instructor and it lands a lot nicer too. That's it. Of <laughs> course, my instructor was a big, solid Croatian bloke who used to swear at me in Croatian when things weren't going swimmingly. So, marvellous <laughs> when he wasn't there. <laughs> well, what I think is really cool yeah. about you getting to fly the P forty is, you know, at twenty four years old, you're probably the you've got to be the youngest P forty pilot in a long, long time, and definitely the youngest one who's currently flying them. And mm. but when you look back, like all of these veterans that I've met over the years who flew them, that's that's the sort of age they were when they flew them. And um, you know, some of them were slightly younger. But um, I, I just think that's really cool that you you're the same age that they are. Oh, they were sorry, you know. And yeah. and most most of the people flying them now are sort of in their fifties and sixties. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, or more. Yeah, um, I think that's uh, sort of. Um, it's good that you touched on that point. It's I think kind of gives it almost a unique connection to the guys that were flying them back in, in the war to be able to kind of experience a, a similar age um, to to what they were. Um, not quite in the same circumstances, but um, you know, the tra training and um, jumping from the Harvard into the P-40, it's yeah, pretty spectacular, really, and it's that's definitely no reason why young people can't do it now. Um, I guess it's just down to perception now and money. <laughs> yeah, money. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, the, the the thing is that you've also you've been involved in aviation for a long, long time, even though you're only 24, and you've worked very, very hard to get to where you are, and and you've built up those hours, but you've also built up not only experience, but respect from other pilots. And that's why you're getting these sort of opportunities because, you know, people see how keen you are. And the other thing I, I know about you, Bevan, is that it's not just about the aeroplanes as machines and, and wanting to fly them, but it's also that you, you really love the history as well. And, and you like meeting the veterans and you like finding out about everything about the aircraft, the, the, the personal side as well as the, the mechanical side, and, and, and I think that's really quite cool. And to be able to, you know, as you say, do the research as well, the whole thing kind of just keeps the history alive, which is, I guess, what we need to work on for the future with um, the ageing um, display pilot population and um, yeah, just losing the veterans need to try and keep all of the stories alive, which is what you're doing so well as well, Dave. Um, recording and keeping the stories alive. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I can see, you know, when you get into your 50s and 60s, you will have brought 
a lot more pilots through that um you know you you're going to be t- telling them all this stuff and and they'll be the ones fly the young ones mm. flying the p40s so mm. hopefully hopefully that's it hopefully it, we hope that it's not regulated out of existence or yeah <laughs> <laughs> Maybe by then it would be like a Mad Max thing and, and Bevan would be lead, <laughs> leading the P-40 Air Force. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> like in something like the desert. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you also went back again, didn't you, and um, for tomorrow air show and got to fly it again, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Uh, um, yeah, I was... I've went over and flew into Melbourne and caught the train up to Doug's place um, to ferry the Harvard up to the show. Um, and so that was a good experience to be able to get another couple of hours of Harvard time and um, look after Doug's aeroplanes for him at the air show and kind of get a little bit more involved with the Australian air show and warbird scene. Yep. Um, and then on the Sunday morning after the show, um, I'd flown the Harvard for a couple of air-to-air photo flights. Um, one of the highlights of that was um, flying alongside the Hurricane, which, oh my gosh, that thing just looks spectacular in the air. Um, and then, yeah, on the Sunday morning, you know, we were just about ready to leave. I'd done the air-to-air photo flights, and Doug tapped me on the shoulder, and he says, um, go and get your head in the right space to go and fly the P-40. Gavin's going to go and take some photos. I was like, oh, yeah, right okay, this will be interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, sure enough, um, we trundled off out and Doug jumped in the back and um, yeah, got airborne for another, we are out for probably 35 minutes or so, um, but it was absolutely fantastic to get back in it again. Yeah. Um, so, uh, got about two and a half hours in it now, I guess. Um, so never, never, ever expected at the beginning of the year to have been able to fly a P40, that's for sure. Yeah, it's brilliant. Brilliant, man. Absolutely brilliant. Yep. Yeah. So, um, the other thing this year, um, you also have been flying uh, a bit of rotary time, haven't you? Yeah, so I've been with the Vintage Aviator, um, been flying the, the Newport 11 quite a bit recently. Um, so, that's got an 80 horsepower Lorraine rotary in it, original engine. And more recently, um, I've been flying this up with Pups, um, which is now probably my favourite World War One aeroplane that I've flown. Right. We've got three up with Pups in the collection, um, all with the original Lorraine rotary engines, and um, it's certainly. To be able to fly as close to real World War One aeroplanes as you can get and fly the World War Two aeroplanes. Um, that's um, yeah, a huge privilege and honour to be able to do that. Um, but it's an amazing challenge as well. Um, it's kind of, you got tricycle undercarriage aeroplanes, tailwheel, and then I kind of like to think of it as then the World War One aeroplanes are, are more of a challenge again. Um, they're just a lot more twitchy and the engine management's quite a lot more demanding. Right. Particularly on the rotary engine aeroplanes than anything modern. You've got no throttle. You've got an air lever and a fuel lever to control the engine yeah. rather than a throttle. So it's yeah, quite 
quite exciting. <laughs> You're basically running it by how it sounds. Okay. Okay. Oh, wow. So, actually, um, just the other day, I was looking at uh, uh, Kermit Week's uh, video where he was flying the Albatross, and yep. he had the, had the camera mounted on his helmet, and when he looked into the cockpit, there's only one gauge in the cockpit. And I was like, there's, there's nothing on the... De- on yeah, the de- I think on the left... Yeah, left-hand side, I think there's a um, altimeter, and I think on the floor there's a compass. Oh, okay, okay. But that's even so, that's, that's still pretty scanned, isn't it? I mean, what, 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 what's it <laughs> yeah. like inside the pup? Um, the British were slightly... Uh, better with their instrumentation um well the albatross has an airspeed indicator way out on the strut out on the wing um that you can hardly read uh but the this the pup has got an rpm gauge an altimeter uh slip ball which is up under the combing where you can't see it a compass and airspeed indicator and that's about it (laughs) nothing None of the aeroplanes have got got really any useful instruments. <laughs> yeah. So um, to be proficient at flying kind of aircraft, really seat like, of the pants. Yeah, but yeah. uh, being proficient to fly aircraft like that, it must um, it must really add to your overall flying experience. And uh, I mean, you could probably jump into any sort of home build or uh, microlide or anything like that, and be quite comfortable knowing that you've. It's probably actually better than some of the World War One stuff that you've flown, if you know what I mean. Like, it's probably safer. Mm. So it, it, it's it, it obviously <laughs> must add to the whole thing. I think the the more different types you fly, that kind of gives you a bit broader base to be able to move on to the next airplane a little bit more easily. Yeah. Um, especially having like flown quite a, a large range of airplanes from. Like a little, uh, what's the smallest thing I've flown? Probably a Quicksilver with a little two-stroke in it. Yep. So it does about 30 miles an hour up to well, up to the P40, I guess. So there's quite a big variety in between. I think there's six or 57 different types or something that I've flown I mean, so if, far. Even that, 50, was it 57 types? That's yeah, amazing, something like right? that. Um, so it's, it definitely, yeah, I think helps moving on to a new type, having flown all those. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, I, I still, uh, I guess, having been involved with such an amazing people over the, what's it, 14 or 15 years I've kind of been involved with aviation has kind of led to some of these opportunities and you learn a heck of a lot just talking to the to the pilots and being around for the briefings and debriefings and um, I think that that does help a lot as well as just flying the airplanes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, cool. So um, we'll move on. Um, Matt, did you want to talk about the uh, ANA DC-3s? Certainly. Um, of course, because my particular... Sickness is researching the history of Australian National Airways, which um, came into existence in 1937, 36, 37, when a number of smaller airlines were merged with um, the the um, chap 
Tasmanian chap by the name of Hollyman, who was a shipping kind of a fellow who decided that he could move people and things around quicker with aeroplanes, he ended up um, the Australian National Airways took over a number of airlines and ended up having a basically all around Australia service by the time the Second World War, war broke out. And um, during the war, they operated um, the internal services and, and also some of the services in the, the South Pacific. After the war, they converted a lot of um, ex-military C-47s and various other derivatives to passenger standards. They had some great engineering workshops and setups where they did a lot of work for the um, the RAF and the American military. And um, a series of rather unfortunate um, episodes in the late 40s um, lost, meant they lost a bit of uh, prestige in the eyes of many and they ended up due to various government policies and other things, the government decided that they wanted to um, break the monopoly. So they started TAA, Trans-Australian Airways, Airlines, and um, they ended up being bought out in, in 1957 by, by ANSET, which was a lot smaller company. Right. But of course, that that's my big thing. Um, and it turns out of all of the um, DC-3s that they had converted, they had four of them before the war, but they converted a lot of military ones to passenger standard after the war. And it turns out that five of them ended up in New Zealand. And um, three of those five came about, I'm sure you know the history of um, South Pacific Airlines of New Zealand. Um, a couple of ex-NAC pilots decided to form their own airline, I think in about 1960. Uh, they got a lot of backing and a lot of support from, from ANSET in, in Australia, from um, uh, Reg ANSET in Australia, and um, they started services and they lasted for six years um, because, of course, NAC decided that um, they were going to really lift their game. And I think the regulations were such that they struggled and ended up, um, uh, they were went bankrupt in 1966. So there were three... Um, uh, the uh, then ANSET ANA DC3s which were provided they um it was a bit of a shock I think to NAC because um they refurbished them in Australia before they sent them over and they put the big um uh Viewmaster windows on them and they put fairly modern interiors on them and they were pretty flash as we say over here and um so they had these three um uh DC3s so you had um the Kiwi registrations of them was ZKCAW, BKD and BYD. And I think um, probably possibly slightly more interestingly, they were named after Ernest Rutherford, Gene Batten and George Bolt. Okay. Um, so they, um, the, the three particular aircraft um, in Australia, they followed a fairly similar history. They were um, American military uh, C-47s. They flew out of Australia, um, ended up sort of in being disposed of in the Philippines in uh, sort of just after the war. ANA bought a whole heap of them. And interestingly enough, and I mentioned this when we were talking wings over Australia, they were quite... Um, clever uh, ANA because they had the pre-war DC-3s. They had the ones that were powered by the right cyclone engines and they managed to find a warehouse in the Philippines that was full of crated brand new zero time cyclone engines which they had brought over there. They were the spares for the Lodestars and the B-17s and of course they hadn't used B-17s for some time so these engines were brand spanking new but no one wanted cyclones, everyone wanted the twin wasps. So um, Holliman bought them all for scrap value and bought enough of these engines, over a hundred and something of them, enough to last them, you know, nearly thirty years. So um, it was pretty, pretty clever move. So when they converted them to um, 
passion to standard. They most of them they replaced the um, twin wasps with the cyclone. So they did this the, the other way around when they went to New Zealand. They put the twin wasps back in them, and so these three aeroplanes f- flew for um, spans. I'm not sure if that's what um, you chaps call it. Yep. But, yep. Um, spans, mate. Um, <laughs> they, they flew for six years and then went bankrupt, and then those three particular aeroplanes ended up um, being bought by um, second-hand aircraft sort of dealers, and they came back to Australia. And all three of them actually. There was a big push in the late 60s in Australia to provide um, DC-3s and C-47s to places like Laos and Cambodia and, and, and the like. There was some sort of government money, sort of aid fund, uh, what do you call it, aid funding or whatever, to provide yep. these aircraft. They were buying these things that were of no interest to anyone and selling them at, at, at great prices to, to get the aid money and they... Most of them ended up sort of in the late 60s or early 70s in smoking holes in the ground in these various Asian countries, as as those three aeroplanes did. The other two, um, well, actually, no, I, I tell a lie. Um, the, George Bolt, um, one of the Spans aircraft, ended up going to NAC in 1966, and it flew for a number of different airways, Fiji Airlines, Miracle, South Seas, uh, ended up going to field air. And converted to um, to the agricultural uh, status. Oh, yeah. um, that end, ended up with Harding. Um, his name was in, in the early eighties. He bought it. Yeah. And he was going to um, do something fabulous with it, but that didn't happen. And that's the one that's in that's currently at the McDonald's at Taupo. Oh, right. Please, okay. please excuse my Aussie pronunciation there, Taupo, mate. Um, <laughs> so that's the one that, that, that's still there. That was. Um, um, so that was the the only of the spans aircraft to survive, and the other two that came. There was a couple of interesting little points about the other two that came over in the early fifties for NAC. Um, one of them was the was the next aircraft on the line to the aircraft that I'm involved with at Moorabbin. The next serial number was the next civil registration when they registered in Australia. Yep. That came over to NAC and it was a freighter, so they put the Pratt & Whitney engines back in it. But this, interestingly enough, because it was a pre-war American Airlines aircraft, um, they it had the, the, the passenger door on the right-hand side. But oh, for right. reasons known to no one, um, they put a cargo door on it on the right-hand side. So you occasionally see photos of this aeroplane in New Zealand with a big... Um, cargo door on the right hand side, and people look at it thinking that the photo might be red or whatever. But um, but no, it um it flew around. It must have been interesting, you know, trying to going going to you know to to load this thing up or unload it when it landed, and realizing that you're looking at fuselage, not a door. But um, that was with withdrawn, and and that one was one of the ones that ended up going um over to Laos, and the other one that um survives today is uh, the other one that came over to um to NAC, and that came over as a freighter. Um, and that, so that flew around as a freighter for a while with NAC. And again, that was one of the other ones that in the 60s was leased to various other airlines. Um, it also went to field there in 1970, and that was going to be, um, you know, that was set aside for a museum in the early 80s. But that's the one that ended up at the wine bar at Gisborne, so up on the okay. pole there. So that's that's still there, and they've repainted it in recent years. So forty percent of the ANA DC threes that ended up in New Zealand still exist. The other sixty percent of them have ended up in, you know, 
fairly unfortunate circumstances in Southeast Asia, but um, not a not a bad not a bad um, percentage, and it's part of my list of the surviving um, ANA DC3s around the world, of which there's about sort of seven or eight, and um, yeah, so that's just my kooky little twist that's of probably no interest to anyone, but it has a New Zealand connection, so I thought I'd mention that tonight. It's actually quite interesting. Yeah, very cool. Oh, I enjoy it. Yeah, thanks for that, Matt. Uh, right, well, the, the next uh, section that usually in these, uh, the forum episodes, we have what's on the panel's minds, and that's uh, an opportunity to raise anything you think needs to be pointed out to the public, good or bad, positive or negative, political or legislative, um, highlighting a safety concern or whatever, um, anything from the whole spectrum of Kiwi aviation. So do you guys have anything that you want to sort of make a point out about when you're, um, you know, got the opportunity? Yeah. <laughs> I guess I've got my biggest gripe is yep. a bit of a safety thing and kind of a little bit political and, yeah, all of the above, really. Um, with the air show scene, the, all the blooming clamping down of display heights and display distances from the crowd and, <clears throat> um, all the other regulations that are coming in it's that does seem a little bit over the top with other motors like um but hang example, on Bevan, you're breaking up rally a car bit, driving sorry, oh, sorry you got me back again yeah you, you, yeah you're breaking up there so all right um yeah so the for example the rally rally car driving uh, you see the public just behind little tape literally half a metre away from the corners of the of the dirt track and yeah. how can they claim that that's safe when <laughs> when they claim, you know, our air shows are unsafe. We've had what, one incident of the, um, um, uh, aeroplane going into the crowd in however many years and suddenly it's all a big disaster. Um, yeah. So hopefully, that's just a shame that the way the whole air show scene's gone, particularly in the UK, it's been quite noticeable from when I was there in 2015. Um, the difference that the Shoreham accident had, um, I was there for, for that as well and saw that happen. Yeah. It was blooming quite a nasty day. Um, but this just had such detrimental effect on the air show scene over there. Um, this just almost seems like a little bit of an overkill, really. But I guess you can't change the the bureaucrats. They've got to be, seem to be doing something about it. Uh, I can see exactly what you're saying there, though. We're, with all the tightening of regulations at an air show, I mean, Shoreham didn't even happen on the airfield, did it? It came down outside the no. boundaries. So. I think that was the problem with it, is that it killed people that weren't actually involved or necessarily been seen to be taking the risk of, atten risk of attending the air show. Right. Um, so, but, but, but you that's know, the it, first time since 1953 that that's happened. So yeah. how many thousands of air shows, how many millions of people have attended or been around an air show, and it happens once and suddenly it's all, you know, I guess it's just, yeah, all over. <laughs> I mean, there have been a couple of other incidents around the world. There was the one at Reno where the Mustang came down in the crowd. and the, Yeah, but that um, was in the crowd, so that was people that had taken the risk to enter the venue, yeah. whereas, yeah, Shoreham wasn't. 
Yeah, true. Uh, I mean, but you, you look at like the the TT racing and the Isle of Man, and everybody's standing mm. at, their, at their fence, or you know, and those those guys are going what two hundred and fifty miles an hour or something on their motorbikes. <laughs> yeah, just you know? nuts. <laughs> it's crazy. And, and you, as you say, the rally cars, um, you know, they, they're not. Lights. Sorry. And yeah, you, you see these things rocketing past inches away, and in the videos, yeah. and people just laughing and thinking it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the cars end up in the crowd. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and and nothing ever gets done about that. It just does. It's a double standard, isn't it? I mean, the amount of safety regulation that gets put into aviation, as opposed to motorsport, it doesn't make any sense. And yet, some motorsports, um, you know, um, Formula One, they've had all the regulations stuck on them, but other stuff, yeah, nothing. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's crazy. We better not talk about that too much more because I'm sure <laughs> that'll start it'll start happening, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. We might have might have just ruined it for all the motorsports. It's, it's not <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Well, I, I've got something that's on my mind um, I just want to briefly mention, and that's uh, about, um, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, six weeks or whatever ago, I did put up on the forum um, about my plan, my intention for Wings Over D-Day, which is to try and get to uh, England and France next year to try and make a series about uh, the New Zealanders who both flew on D-Day and and around that period of the uh, liberation of France and Europe. Uh, but also the wider angle of just all the New Zealanders who went and flew in the RAF. Because people these days in New Zealand just know so little about it. There's hardly anything ever in the media. And particularly, I've noticed right back to the 50th anniversary of D-Day, the 60th anniversary of D-Day, you know, the 65th, all of these things, when you see them come up on the news, they always have um, news items on there and they show... Americans and British at, the, at most, mm. mainly Americans. And they never mention the New Zealanders who were involved. And I actually did see one broadcast where I wrote to the TV company and complained because they actually said there were no New Zealanders involved in D-Day. And I, I wrote and said, hang on a minute, there were 10,000 New Zealanders involved in D-Day, thank you very much. And they came back and actually apologised, but it's too late once it's gone out on the television. Um, yeah. You know, there were... There were t- Apparently, ten thousand New Zealanders involved on D-Day itself, just just on the sixth of June. And, oh, amazing! And that they were in the Navy and in the Air Force. There weren't many army. I don't, <gasps> I don't know if there were any army, to be honest. But that's the problem with this country: is everyone thinks that the war was only the army. You know, they forget about the Air Force and the Navy. And so, if if the army wasn't there, then New Zealand wasn't there. And um, that's not how it really worked. I mean, the Air Force. Uh, you know, in the RNZF on that day, there were bomber pilots, there were fighter pilots, bomber crews, there were uh, New Zealanders who were in the uh, the Dakota transports that were dropping paratroopers and to- towing the gliders, and there was, uh, you know, all over the place, and, and people right up to the top as well uh, in the in the planning, you know, people like uh, uh, um, Arthur Conningham and people like that. Uh, the, there's so many New Zealanders involved, and and you go back even to the Battle of France and and the Battle of Britain, and you know all of these key points. There were New Zealanders there 
right from the beginning, right through to the end. And do we ever see anything in the mainstream media? No, we don't. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ma- I want to make a, a, a series where it highlights this stuff. And I've been trying to put together some sort of plan. Um, I had the idea that I could go to um, various organizations and companies and try and convince them to sponsor it. And so far, I've had quite a few responses back and they've all been negative. So I don't think it's going to happen. Um, it's, uh, yeah, there's no interest. There's no interest in this country in our history because it hasn't been told enough in the past. So nobody knows about it and they don't believe it. I think that's what it is, to be honest. Mm, that's incredibly sad, really, isn't it? It is. I really thought it would have had a much better chance. Yeah, it's. I don't know. I mean, yeah, uh, this. It, it's, it's frustrating. Um, there's so much that I could have done with the series. Is that I, there's stories I want to tell that need to be told. I mean, I, I, for years now, I've been interviewing people, and a lot of them actually flew on D-Day. Um, and, and, you know, I haven't, I haven't used those anywhere. I was going to, you know, cut them into it. So there's people talking about their experiences, you know, that these people might not be here anymore. I also was hoping to go and get some new fresh interviews with people who were there. Um, I want to be able to go to some of the museums and the airfields and the, um, you know, all sorts of places around Britain and around France to get stories about uh what they're doing there as well and how they remember it and and whether whether they remember the new zealand involvement um yeah there's there's so many stories that could be told and i I just find it kind of frustrating that nobody seems to have any interest Mm. that the people the you know the people who read my post on the forum i got a lot of good responses from that uh, on and off the forum um and, and some good offers of places to stay and, you know, um, contacts and stuff like that. But it's just getting there and, and, and getting the, getting the whole thing done. So I, I think, unfortunately, it's not going to happen for the 75th anniversary of D- D-Day um, because I don't think I'm going to have enough time to try and, you know, raise the money myself. And I think uh, it's kind of sad that there's, you know, it's not like... I'm just, you know, some someone that's just wanting to get a free trip to Europe. It's not that. It's it, it's no. trying to it's trying to tell the history and, um, yeah, it's it, it it's kind of it's hard to explain, but it's it's frustrating. Yeah, I I can definitely see exactly where you're coming from there, and it's just it's it's almost just disappointing, really. That oh, yeah, you're saying. Yeah, oh, and thanks thanks for your support, guys. I mean, I know that you guys have been very enthusiastic about it. and um, I mean, if I can find a way in between now and then, I will. I'd love to get there for the 75th because it's probably going to be the last one they ever have any veterans at. Um, mm. You know, and I'd love to see those uh, those Dakotas all flying together too when they, they're going to have, um, you know, a couple of dozen of them. But... Um, but one day I'll get there, and one day I'll do this. Uh, even if it is just in Britain, um, I'm going to do the story of New Zealanders in, in the RAF and it's put it out as a series. Uh, oh, on, a, on another note, we'll move on. and um, The next section is Great Escapes, and um, it's really just any uh, anything that 
you might have read lately, any books um, or any films or TV, radio or podcasts that um, have been interesting aviation topics that you want to mention. Um, I'll, I'll start off here with um, just the other day I listened to episode 89 of Aviation News Talk, which was uh, that's Max Trescott's um, podcast. And uh, Max is one of the presenters of Airplane Geeks, which is a very well-established and, and popular uh, podcast on aviation from the USA. And he also has his own solo uh, show called Aviation News Talk, which comes out weekly. And he recently um, visited Australia and uh, recorded a number of episodes over there. And I just found um, episode 89, General Aviation, in Australia really interesting. He sat down and talked with the chap who... Um, runs AOPA over there and they talked about all the different challenges and all the highlights of um, general aviation in Australia and I think any Australian or New Zealander who's involved in aviation should have a listen to that because I think that a lot of it probably also is happening here and um, you know there's a lot of a lot of crossover so so that, that was uh, one thing that I'd like to mention and um, Another one is uh, I watched this earlier in the year when I found it online, and um, I found it again just last week and and watched watched it a couple of times again. Oh, you're right. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, I watched it a couple of times again, and that was uh, coloured footage of Aaron's P40s in the Pacific, and uh, it was it's on a U.S. Marine Corps uh, archive online, and. I know you've had a look at it, Bevan. It's fantastic yeah, footage. That's, that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll put a link of, uh, uh, into the show notes for that of, of that film so people can have a look at it. And I, I just wanted to say um, it's really cool that this year two films that have been really well talked about, particularly in the aviation circles and history circles, um, of all the films that have come out at the cinema, I think they're, the, they're probably my absolute favourites this year, and that's uh, the Spitfire movie and um, They Shall Not Grow Old with the World War One film. Both bloody brilliant. And if you haven't seen them, make sure you go and see them or get the DVDs. Or yeah, I agree. They're absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah. Sorry, Matt? That's the plan. Things yeah, move you... slowly. Yeah, so you, you haven't seen them yet? I haven't yet, but yeah, hoping to too. Yeah, yeah no, they're really good, eh, Bevan? Mm, no, they sure are. And it's sad that um, nearly all of the veterans that they interview and talk about during the Spitfire film, they're all they've all passed away now. Yeah, mm. yeah. So within the last kind of six or eight months or so, they've all all gone. Yeah, that's really sad. They got it just at the right time, though. I mean, all of them were really with it and told great stories mm. right, oh, right sure up until the end. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the footage too. Oh my God. It's just so good. Mm. Oh, it really is amazing. Lucky enough to meet most of those um, people while I was over in the UK over the last couple of trips as well. And they're just, they're, uh, the stories that they tell are just, it kind of, almost, hard to believe or hard to imagine what it would have been like yeah yeah so what about you guys have you got any uh books or 
films or anything. Um, so uh, you'll know, of course, Dave, because you've kind of put me onto them um, with the, the recent um, large collection of Aaron's Today contact magazines that um, I was given. Um, oh, yes. I didn't really know much about the contact magazine um, until a month or two ago, um, but I've got uh, probably a large portion of the magazines that they released during the wartime period. And this, I've just only had a chance to have a bit of a flick through, but there's some pretty amazing articles um, to, to be read from, from the time. So I'm sure if you'll be able to talk a little bit more about them, Dave, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting in and reading them. Yeah, well, um, Contact was the official magazine of the RNZDF. It started in 1941 and went through to the end of the war. And uh, they kind of started again after the war for a bit, and then it stopped again. But uh, there are some 1950s issues that are harder to get. But, uh, yeah, um, what was it? Probably, I don't know, seven or eight weeks ago, I heard from a lady who found me online through the forum and, and said, oh, we're my dad's gone into a home, we're cleaning up all of his stuff, and we've got these magazines called Contact, and I wondered if you'd like them. And um, I said, look, I've got I've got the whole set myself, but I know somebody who would absolutely love them. And so I put her in touch with Bevan, and uh, and you guys really struck it off, and, and um, yeah, she's um, she's been very kind and, and yeah. uh, arranged to even have her sister take them up up to meet you and pass them over and yeah so we, we had lunch and she yeah gave me the box of the magazines and she's uh, made a couple of trips back even since then with more books and a couple of large spitfire prints and all sorts of amazing mm -hmm. stuff that's yeah been pretty, pretty lucky with that that's really cool and like her, her father fully approves because um you know, they recognised how passionate you are about the history and and aviation and all that sort of thing. So um, it's good that he's still around to, to know that they've gone to a good home. Well, well, he can't use them anymore. So because I think he's he's going yeah. blind or something, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the case. Um, yeah. He was he was in the Met Department, I think, in Fiji during World War Two or somewhere right. somewhere in the Pacific. Um, yeah, it, I haven't quite he, managed to get the full story yet. Yeah, he also uh, was up at Waipapa Carry for a bit as well. I know that much. Uh, um, that's right. Mm. But yeah, no, that's that's really good. And I, I'm so pleased that uh, you know when she when she offered them to me, and I thought, well, I know somebody who like this because I know how much you're into the the history as much as um, you know, as I said earlier, the, as well as the mechanical side of things and flying and all that. So um, yeah, really cool. And I know that over over the years to come, you can keep going back to those. I've got my whole set here, and you just go back and you sit down and you see something you hadn't read before, and it's they're brilliant. They're like a little sort of aviation version of Reader's Digest. <laughs> got yeah, um, got, actually, I can't believe they've spent so much time and made such a thorough magazine for wartime. Yeah, yeah. they're quite a hefty little magazine. They are. I think they've got was it about fifty or sixty pages. Um, yeah. I'll, just and, have a look. They're just sitting right next to me. Yeah. Uh, 70. 70, 80 yeah. pages. Wow. 80 pages. That's, yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, they um, they had several staff who uh, were writers. They had um, at least one artist. Morris Connolly was 
the artist. They had another artist before him, I think. Um, they had cartoonists. Um, some of them wrote uh, serious articles that were ge- genuine articles. Um, and then some of them would write fiction. And there's there's characters that every every month, they were a monthly magazine, and every month there's uh, comic sort of uh, articles with Egbert the Irk. Um, Irk being a uh, you know a junior tradesman, uh, and there's a there's a waff, I can't remember which what her number is, but there was a WAF that um, used to write a monthly column and all, all from a WAF's angle, um, various things like that. And they also used to get articles in from overseas publications like TM and in Britain and stuff like that. So you'll see Flying Officer X wrote a lot of the articles. Well, he was uh, oh. What was his name? He was a well-known British writer, anyway, who joined the Air Force and used to write under that under that name, uh, pseudonym. But um, another one of their staff writers was uh, Jeffrey Bentley, who um, went on to write a couple of books about the RNZF as well. And and that's where I got my full set because uh, I got in contact with Jeffrey to uh, you know interview him about uh, he he was in one of the wartime squadrons that I was interested in and um he um we, we started talking about uh contact and he said look i've got a whole spare set here that i was given so you can you can have it if you want and i was like oh that's brilliant so yeah Terrific. so just like you i got a i got it given to me as well and um, um yeah it's, it's really neat yeah i can't wait to get onto them <clears throat> so uh how about you matt have you got any Interesting. Little things that I've been reading. I've been doing a lot of reading lately. Um, went down to to Moorabbin for the annual general reading uh, a month or so ago, and picked up a couple of books that I had copies of years ago. But um, uh, picked up some in the, the one of the museum book sales. They pick up a lot of books from all over the place. Uh, the two volume air crash set, basically chronicling the various. Um, the tagline is the story of how Australia's airways were made safe. And there's volume one, which takes you through to all about the Second World War, and then volume two that takes you sort of through to the 60s. Okay. And, um, and it's written by a fellow who died not long ago, MacArthur Job, who was a, he was a pilot himself. He worked with the civil aviation, um, various bureaucracies, and um, was an investigator in, in later events, but he uh, researched in great detail a lot of the the different um, air crashes throughout Australian history. And very, very interesting because you see how, you know, as they say, the, the holes in the Swiss cheese all line up and it's not one factor, it's often a lot of factors and yep. little things that, that happened. And um, uh, how the how civil aviation improved as a result of a lot of these crashes. Like there was one one of the Australian National Airways, there we are again, uh, DC-2s um, crashed in the Dandenong Ranges in Melbourne in 1938. And the, that was uh, radio issues and they got the 180-degree bearing and they thought they were somewhere and they were actually somewhere else and um, flew into a mountain. And um, because of that, they the, after, after that, they um, put the Lorenz um, radio direction... Um, 
equipment in, which which was was an improvement, and you know the various other things after the war. It's kind of like the the story of the comet in in, in England with the the fatigue and you know little things all happen and go catastrophic. That was that's been fairly interesting to read. Not only the factors that led to each particular. Um, incident but also you know what was happening in the investigations afterwards and what happened as a result of it another little um two volume set that my very patient and tolerant wife bought for my birthday a couple of years ago the rwaf hudson story by david vincent a couple of heavy heavy um hard bound you know the each book i think is about 300 pages each and it goes into great detail of the use of the hudson with the raf and individual histories of the aircraft and use right throughout the war and then um, use beyond because in australia we had a number of hudsons used for um aerial survey work right through into the days of preservation so most of the hudson surviving in the world are ex aerial survey aircraft like the one at the one at here well you know, other than your own, of course, but um, the <laughs> one and the three, three or four of them still in Australia are ex aerial survey aircraft, which were earning their keep right through to the late sixties and early seventies, and um, that's been very interesting. Very, very. That's the definitive history, two part history of the Hudson in in Australian um, service. Yeah. So that's been a, a sort of a bit heavier reading, and then when I want to have reading of an aviation theme that you know is completely uh from a different angle i like to read neville shoots um works okay and uh, um the neville shoot norway who was in, involved with airspeed and involved with the 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 um the various developments that came along in the 30s and he ended up he moved to australia after the war and wrote quite a few novels just as his time and you can see that the incredible technical knowledge of the man but his ability to tell a story and, and paint a picture with words and i've reread i read it about once a year a story called round the bend which is a fabulous story of a um an englishman who serves as a, a aircraft fitter as it were in the in the raf in the in in the middle east during the second world war and then starts an airline out there after the war and and how things go along and and a fellow turns up who had been a fellow apprentice with him in the 30s in england and um uh, just the adventures, the very, very interesting human story. I mean, it's all all fake, of course, like all all fictional, but yeah. very, very interesting. So that that that's a nice little distraction from my my day my day job as a parole officer, which has is a fairly intense line of work. And yeah, um, yeah so that's so so reading reading all of that's been pretty good value for me, pretty good fun lately. Very cool. That's brilliant. Um. Now, uh, what I usually do in these uh, the forum episodes too is ask what your most memorable flight was. So, what was your most memorable flight, Matt? Well, my most me- memorable fl- flight um, was the I suppose I, I, I you know in, anyone who's done any um, flying themselves always remembers their first solo. I am. Um, as I sort of mentioned before, just being amazed at how well a, a little two-seat Cessna handles when you're by yourself, yep. and um, the excitement and and uh, I won't say blind panic, but that realization that it's all up to you from here. Yeah. Um, a, a memorable <laughs> flight was when I was um, my instructor. I was with my instructor, but I was climbing out in a, again in a little 150 Aerobat, climbing out of Moorabbin, and um, I said to the the my instructor, I was in the left seat, and I said, I think um, 
I can smell fumes. And about two seconds later, I was sort of climbing through about 500 feet and I'd, I'd, I'd um, done my first turn and the uh, revs dropped and quite basically back to idle, though the throttles, you know, that, you know, hadn't moved. Sort of looked at one another and, and time slows down in a situation like that. He, he made a mayday call and told me what to do. So I was fairly white knuckled and, and, and um, you know, put it into basically into glide configuration. But because we had turned early and were still well and truly over the airfield, we were able to basically make a, a almost straight in approach. So the, the tower told everyone else, else to sort of get out of the way and keep an eye on us and, you know, managed to get down. So so um, one of the cylinders split 300 degrees around the ball. So it basically wow. went back to, nice. to idle. And thankfully it stayed at 300 degrees, not 360 degrees because the, the top of a pot coming off wouldn't have been fun. And right. um, got down and sh- and shut down and sort of sitting there in the, the, on the runway where we were and sort of shaking and having mm. um opened the, the door and unharnessed myself and tripped and landed flat on my face. <laughs> so, so I was just lying there on the on the on the run thinking light. <laughs> uh, I think it was back to the Euro Club bar for, for something stiff to sort of calm me down after that. But yeah that was pretty good. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> oh fantastic. But actually, my first solo, it, it, it occurred to me, um, that was on the, the, in 1993, on the 50th anniversary of the Dam Buster Raid. Oh, right. oh wow. That's good. So, good day to have it. Yeah, it was a nice little little thing. But, um, yeah, so that that's my most memorable flight. Cool. And Bevan? Um, uh, I've had a few few scary ones but we won't go into those um i think had a few interesting scares over the last few years but anyway um my most memorable would probably be on my first trip to england in 2015 um when we sent the world uh, a couple of world war one airplanes over there with the vintage aviator um i ended up doing some flying at an original world war one airfield in essex and star marie's with the World War One Aviation Heritage Trust, um, we had a BE-2E, and um, I was lucky enough to be able to fly that for a couple of displays over there, and to be flying well, pretty much as close to an original BE-2 as you can get from a World War One airfield over the centenary. Um, attacked by an albatross is kind of quite almost a moving experience to realise that you know a hundred years ago you're pretty much on a suicide mission and a BE2 you don't realise really how helpless you are until you've kind of experienced that yeah. I thought well that's kind of quite uh, a I no really, but that that was probably one of my most memorable flights. Um, but yeah, what else? What other ones? But of course, the the P forty is a major highlight. But there's been so many highlights, and a few <laughs> the memorable ones are not necessarily ones that you want to remember. <laughs> but, yeah. but in some cases, you you got to fly in uh, the Blenheim, didn't you? I did. Um, oh. That was 
that was um, absolutely fantastic. We, um, for this, on that trip, I stayed after Jean came back to New Zealand. Um, I stayed in England for what was going to be two weeks, which turned into an extra two months, um, tinkering at Duxford and helping out um, with John Remain's team there. Um, we were heading to the Cosby show, just um, and we were taking the Blenheim, and yeah, I ended up helping out as ground crew and um, yes, I rode to and back from the air show um, in the turret of the Blenheim, and had the uh, had the Bouchon come zipping past a few times, and it's pretty fantastic. The um, all the hydraulics and everything in the turret works. So, yeah, it's good good to have a little bit of a, a tinker around with that. And again, you can definitely see you're you're absolutely staffed. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That dinky way three oh three in there is you know, haven't got really a lot of hope. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. What an amazing aeroplane. <clears throat> well, um just uh, moving on, um I usually ask also who are your aviation heroes? So, Matt, who is your aviation heroes? I mentioned this fella in um, Wings Over Australia, but I think he deserves another crack. Uh, Morris Cass, a fellow I met, he was, um, I met him, he was, when I met him in um, 22 years ago, he was a, a bloke then, I think in his late 70s, uh, maybe early 80s, a, an old retired priest. Really yeah. gentle, quiet old fella, um, quite tall, um, and as I got to know him and spent a bit of time with him, he, he gave little fragments of experiences. And it turned out that he was a, um, a pilot in the RAF during the war and flew after the war. And um, he was one of the Australian pilots who flew with the US 5th Air Force in 4243 uh, um, out of northern Queensland and in the South Pacific when their numbers were horribly low. And so Australians flew in the Bostons and in the, uh, in the Mitchells primarily um, as basically in every position except um, air, aircraft command, airplane commander. So they were co-pilots and gunners and wireless operators and, and so on. And um, Carsey was a, he flew in the Battle of the Bismarck Sea with the um, 90th Bomb Squadron of the 3rd Attack Group flying Mitchells at mast top height. And these were Mitchells that had been upgunned with the, the then new idea of putting a whole heap of 50 calibre machine guns in the no noses and, um, you know, painting over the... the the, the greenhouses and and um, they flew at mast top height and um, they were the ones that were followed by the Australian bowfighters who who came in the second wave and all and Carsey tells stories of about you know he 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 just touched on it very briefly but I found out a lot about him after he died and um, I was with him one day and and um, he was pretty doddery by this stage dear old fella and he. Um, was jumped in his car to go driving up to his home in the hills and instead of pressing the brake, he pressed the accelerator and the, the car launched off and went driving up between. He went hauling up between the two buildings and, and ended up in the in the, the wall at the end. And anyway, we all ran terrified and he was just sitting there softly chuckling to himself and we dragged him out the back window. And said, Are you all right? And he says, he said, oh, I've fought the Japanese at 40 feet. You know, that's not going to kill me. But um, <laughs> yeah. really, a real, real gentleman. And, I mean, he, he'd like to laugh, but he wouldn't talk about himself. He talked about the aircraft, you know, when I really pushed him. And then he'd just say, okay, that'll do for today. And, and um, 
flew with Qantas after the war for a few years and then followed a spiritual path and um, just a really good, decent bloke. And you just think about people like him, like as I would imagine, um, you know, like you, Dave, having, you know, understood um, serving in the military and like yourself, Bevan, knowing what it's like to be a fellow in his 20s flying, you know, high-performance aircraft of 1918 and, you know, the 1940s, having that incredible connection to the human story. And he really gave me that. He exemplified the fact that it's the human story that's the most interesting and it's these big, shiny, um, expensive machines that add to that story. But without that story, they're nothing. So, I mean, yeah, Kasi would be my aviation hero. Brilliant. Really brilliant. And how about you, Devin? Um, for me, I've got, I've got quite a few. Um, well aviation heroes and mentors um i, I hear all the time of, of the well, the generation before me having all of the, the world war ii pilots as their mentors or instructors or so on as they're learning to fly unfortunately i didn't quite get that <laughs> um but for me if, to get where i am now um there's been a heck of a lot of people that have helped me get here so um, when I started at the Vintage Aviator, um, the chief pilot and production manager at the time, Gene DeMarco, took me under his wing and um, kind of mentored me through right from the ground up pretty much. So I started with the grunt jobs there at the hangar and um, he gave me, once I got my flight, um, gave me opportunities of fearing and escorting one airplanes around the countryside to air shows, building up my experience to um, to eventually be able to fly the airplanes um, and looking after the P-40 and Corsair at the air shows and gaining that sort of experience, which has enabled me to lead on to um, what I'm doing now. So basically, if it wasn't for him um, and several others as well, like Keith Skilling for my display authorization. Uh, there's just so many people that have helped me to get where I am now to be able to um, be in a position where um, I'm almost able to um, pass some of the information on to um, some of my other younger friends that are coming up through the warbird scene. But there's, yeah, um, Keith Skilling as well, has, yeah, he's helped me hugely with my display authorizations and he's always there on the end of the phone if you need need to have a chat or if you've got something you want to talk about this you, you can't get um much more level-headed and um more respected pilot than keith to talk to and mentor through the display flying so yeah he's a he's another amazing one for me really cool yeah, are there any others or? Um, oh, there's yeah, there's loads. Um, yeah. well, John remains another amazing one for me. As he started as a uh, in his early years as an apprentice, um, I think it was with BAE, um, doing his apprenticeship there, and he wanted to become a commercial pilot, but. Um, it didn't quite end up working out for him and he ended up getting into the restoration scene and now you look at the amazing empire that he set up and to, for him to take the time 
and to offer an opportunity for me to go and spend time with him and um, which ended up being several months and I went back last year as well for a few weeks. Um, he's given me an amazing insight into the UK warbirds scene and to see another different way of um, being able to achieve his goals and yeah, the amazing empire that he's set up now. I mean, I think everyone would be in awe of what he's done. It's just absolutely incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so he's definitely someone that I look up to. Yep, I totally, totally see that. And I, I guess uh, another one for you would be Doug as well, wouldn't it? Oh, most certainly. Hey, hey, over the last um, couple of years since I've gotten to know Doug, um, and more so in the last year, the opportunity that he was able to give me to go and spend time just tinkering in the workshop there, learning about P40s um, and entrusting me with his airplanes as well. Um, he let me fly all of his airplanes. I don't think there was there was only one that I didn't fly because it didn't have an annual. Um, but every other airplane in this collection he allowed me to fly over the five or six weeks that I was there. And he's another one that incredibly level-handed, amazingly talented, and yeah, you know, um, he he just gives you so much time. And if you got a question, he doesn't make you feel like an idiot. He right. just um, talks you through it, and he's really supportive of younger guys trying to come into the warbird scene and to keep all of this history um, alive as well. That's just yeah, another one that no, there's no way that I'd be where I am if it wasn't for him. Oh, that's very cool. Very cool. Um, okay, well, um, one of the last sort of segments we always have is shout-out, which is um, time for the panellists and the host to pr promote any good causes or interesting projects or clubs or events or aviation businesses that you want to give a shout-out to, um, and, and whether you're involved with it or not. Um, I, I'll start off by just saying I just want to give a shout-out to Fly DC3, um, at Ardmore, they're a fantastic group of people, and as I said earlier, they hosted us for our um, our Wands Christmas party a couple of weekends ago. But they're always wherever they go, they're always fantastic. Uh, you know, really welcoming, really friendly, really awesome people, and um, they also run a really good slick uh, operation there with their DC3. And if you get a chance, go and have a flight, have a scenic or one of their longer uh, distance flights, they they do these uh, sort of DC3 safaris through New Zealand now, and um, just it's a beautiful aircraft, and it, it's so well maintained and looked after by them, and, and they love it, and they just love what they do, and um, they love their customers as well, and they're really it's probably the best airline in New Zealand. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's my shout out. Excellent. So what what are you guys? Have you got anything or? Yeah, um, well from from over the last last year, it's great to see more organisations being able to support younger people getting into the warbird scene. So, like warbirds over Wanaka with their um, scholarship that they've set up now that um, I talked about earlier. It's yep. great to see organisations that are um, starting to realise that we actually do need a 
support people coming into this um, this scene because unfortunately it's not something you can step into with five minutes of work and um, it's all incredibly expensive as well. So to be able to create um, more awareness of the effort that people put into trying to keep this history alive is, is pretty spectacular. And um, the other one as well, um, the Vintage Aviator, now that we're all up and kind of operating again, it's on the last weekend of each month during the summer. It's not exactly a public weekend, but um, there's a great spot to view from the cafe. Um, we pull all the aeroplanes out and fly them. At the moment, we're practicing up for Wings Over Warrapa. So we just had our last flying weekend of the year, just this last weekend gone, and we had, I think, 22 World War One aircraft out um, uh, with some spectacular formations of, um, I think one of them was uh, FE-2B, two BE-2s, Bristol Fighter, and three SC-5s. Wow. Or wow. the three Albatross first, three SC-5s in a dogfight which was also pretty spectacular sort of stuff you can't see anywhere else in the world. It's right on our doorstep here. So yeah, yeah last weekend of each month and come and enjoy it. Awesome. Yeah. Very good. And Matt, have you got any shout-outs? Myself? Um, again, of course, I'm going to shout-out to anyone who may be in southern Australia to um, stick your head in the door at the Barabin Air Museum. Um, a lot to see there. Like I mentioned, um, it's sort of looking at, at an experience that, that um, is uh, interesting enough for, for everyone. Um, lots of things that the fans would like, like we've got plenty of books and models and all of those sorts of things. Uh, lots of things for the kids to do, climbing into things that we've, we've, we've kid-proofed, but it's still, still fairly authentic and, and, and worth having a look at. Um, for people who might be around who, who want to... You know, want to get involved in historic aviation? There's opportunities there as well, and of course, living in southern New South Wales, I, you know, you know, we all know about tomorrow, of course, but that's always worth. They've they've got um, plenty to see and do there as well. So, I would um, push both of those. I would sort of encourage involvement and and visiting and 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 all the like there. Um, tomorrow's very good, also with the the. Um, the range of things that they have available to take away so um as well as the experience so yeah I, I think and i would probably encourage people to get involved in their local um aviation museum or group or um you know like the the group like the um, organizations that promote youth in in aviation uh things like that that you know always worth a look and always worth involvement Brilliant. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree with both of you on your shout-outs. They're great. Well, I guess we should um, bring this to a close, and uh, I just want to say to the listeners, if uh, if anyone's still listening, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's time for you guys to have your say, so send in your thoughts and questions and feedback, um, anything like that. Um, we've got the, uh, the forum, of course, the Wings Over New Zealand forum, and we've got the Facebook page, uh, the one show Facebook page and um, you can also uh, put feedback directly on the show page for, for this episode. So there's plenty of ways for you to get in touch and, and just have your say and send in ideas for the next uh, episode or 
the next forum episode and things like that. And also um, tell your friends about the Wings of New Zealand show and um, share this episode to your Facebook page or uh, your Twitter or whatever to get the word out there about the show and get more people listening. And um, I just want to say thank you very much to Bevan and Matt and uh, also a huge Merry Christmas and um, season's greetings. And um, I, um, yeah, I really am most grateful for, to have you on the show and, and uh, do this sort of experimental show to try and get the Skype recordings back going again. So I hope, hopefully this is uh, recorded. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> So it will be better the second time. <laughs> exactly. Great to be part of it. <laughs> well, thanks very much, guys. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll, all the uh, best. We'll have you back on the show again um, sometime, maybe next year. Beautiful. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Dave. Um, Thank always you, a Dave. privilege. Thanks, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Cheers. Yes. And Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. You're really googly, like we can't yeah. understand. Can't understand what you're saying, mate. Yeah, yeah. Can't all must have a dodgy internet connection. <laughs> take that shoe out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Not just my accent. Oh, that sounds better. That sounds clearer. Get away, mate. Now you going? Going all right, are you? <laughs> <laughs> We got an accent. You're the ones with the bloody accent. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm recording this. This is going on the end. You <laughs> that's absolutely marvellous, old chap. Oh, too funny. There's a bit of heavy breathing. I think it might be you, Bevan.
Okay, I'll stop breathing and tell me if it stops. <laughs> I think everything will stop in a minute if you stop breathing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so many of the fly-ins of all different types this year. Uh, I'm not sure what that noise was, but... Sorry, that was my end. Your end. 